Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I think they knew for years that we didn't do it. When we got out, my lawyers took me home. Just everything's different, the colors, the smells. Everybody's not wearing the same color clothes, you know. It's just it's just totally different. It's kind of a you know shock in a way. I'm Yardley. And I'm Zibby. And we're fascinated by true crime. So we invited our friends, detectives Dan and Dave, to sit down with us and share their most interesting cases. I'm Dan. And I'm Dave. We're identical twins, and we're detectives in small-town USA. Dave investigates sex crimes and child abuse. Dan investigates violent crimes, and together we've worked on hundreds of cases, including assaults, robberies, murders, burglaries, sex abuse, and child abuse. Names, places, and certain details, including relationships, have been altered to protect the privacy of the victims and their families. Though we realize that some of our listeners may be familiar with these cases, we hope you'll join us in continuing to protect the true identities of those involved out of respect for what they've been through. Thank you. In this episode, we sit down with Sam, who was one of the suspects from a two-part case we covered in Season 2 called Presumed Guilty. If you haven't heard that one already, we highly recommend you go back and have a listen. Meanwhile, if you're a regular listener to Small Town Dicks, you know that we change the names of the people and places that we cover in these stories, and we even change the nature of relationships in order to protect the victims and their families. But when we ran this idea by Sam, he said it would be easier for him to tell his story in his own words if he used real names. So we struck a deal, agreeing to leave some names in and redacting others, so that we could both honor our own code of confidentiality, as well as Sam's request to tell the story the way he remembers it. This is The Accused. Today on Small Town Dicks, we have some of the usual suspects. We have Detective Dan. Pleasure to be back. But our favorite Detective Dave is off fighting crime in Small Town, USA, so we will have to limp along without him today. However, we are very pleased to welcome back one of our favorite guests, Sergeant David. Hello. It's great to see you, sir. 
We're also pleased to welcome a new guest to the show, Sam. Hi, thank you. Thank you for joining us today. You're welcome. So, Sam, did you grow up in the town where the crime you were convicted of happened? Pretty much, yeah. Just got out of the military, and I met a girl out here, and it was 1983. There wasn't a lot going on. It was pretty small, and uh, things happened, I guess. How old were you at the time? I was 19. And how close were you with Eric during the time that everything went down? Were you good friends? No, uh, we were pretty good friends. We only known each other probably about eight months, but we were getting to be pretty good friends. I think we had a bonding experience after that for the next 10 years. After you both were sentenced to prison? Yeah. So take us back to the day of the murder. What do you remember? I was hanging out with Eric, and uh, I was going out with a girl named Liz, and we just kind of hung around all that day, just goofed around, and... Uh, had dinner that evening, and Eric was going to go over to his other girlfriend's house that he had that was turned 21. Eric uh, was supposed to meet her sometime after midnight when the bars got close to closing. Because he wasn't 21, he could get in the bars, and she just turned 21. And uh, we just hung out pretty much the whole night and drank, played cards, and just messed around. And the neighbor down the street was Gil and Vicky, and uh, I let Gil and Vicky borrow my car that night because they didn't have a car, and they were going out. And we just hung out at Liz's house. And uh, about 1.45, 1.30, I figured they should have been back in my car. So I walked down to Gil's house to see if he was back in my car, and he was. And I was going to take Eric up to drop him off there. There's a store, the 7-Eleven store, and we stopped to buy some beer. Neither one of us were 21, but I had some fake military ID that usually worked pretty good to buy beer. So we stopped there to buy beer, and Eric was already pretty drunk. He was, he was drinking a lot that night. He was pretty drunk in the front seat of my car. He didn't even get out of the car. He just was, you know, hurry up, do what you're doing. And uh, I started to go into the store, but I grabbed two empty bottles that were rolling around the backseat of my car, banging together. I took them and set them on the counter. And I stood there for a minute, and I walked back to the cooler to get some beer. But I didn't see a clerk or anything in the store, so I kind of thought that was odd, but I figured he was around there somewhere. And uh, the more I looked around, the more stranger it got because no one came out. I made some noise. I yelled a little bit. And I didn't see anybody. I looked out the car to see what Eric was doing. Eric was just leaning on the dash, kind of half asleep, half awake. He was, he never got out of my car. He just sat there the whole time. And so I came back out and I said, hey, Eric, there's nobody in the store. We could take anything we want, you know? There's nobody there. And he says, I quit messing around. Let's go or something like that, right? And so I walked back in the store and I, you know, I looked around some more. I yelled. I pushed on the cooler door. It was back there. And then I opened up the glass doors and I yelled. I said, hey, it sure is nice, all this free beer and stuff. No, hey, oh, anyone here? No, and that's still nothing, no response. No. So I grabbed a couple of six-packs of Heineken. I walked out of the store, and I threw it on Eric's lap. I said, see, I'm telling you, there's nobody in the store. And he just looked at me, and, you know, like in disbelief. He didn't know what to say either. And I reached over and grabbed the keys out of my car and the mission across from Eric, and I put the beer in the trunk, and I walked to the public phone. I was going to call the police. They go, yeah, I'm going to call 911. I'm going to call the cops. You know, and Eric goes, what are you doing? You don't, you don't have a license, and I'm drunk. He goes, I'm not saying I'm driving. And so I hung up the phone, and I walked back over to the Proctor, and I said, well, yeah, you got to say you're driving. So I walked back in the store again, got my two empty bottles I set on the counter, walked back out to the car. I got in the car with Eric, and we sat there. And we thought for a minute, you know, probably at least a good minute, and debated on what to do. And then I started up the car and left, drove away, and uh, got up to the house. Eric got out of the car and went to see if she was home. He came back about a minute or two later and uh, told me that he was got in the house. He wasn't here yet, but he'd wait for her. And, he asked me to have a couple of the beers that I just took him from the store. So I gave him the keys. He got in the trunk. He grabbed a couple of beers. I told him to call me tomorrow, and I left. I drove. I was driving back to Liz's house, 
I stopped. I still haven't seen anybody at the store. So I stopped at Gil's and told him what happened. And Gil's girlfriend said, maybe you ought to go back to see what's going on. So I said, well, hey, I stole some beer out of the store. Maybe I should put it in the refrigerator before we go back there. So I went out and got the beer out of the car. I put it in the refrigerator. And Gil was putting his shoes on and grabbed a stick at the club he had. And we drove back up the store. We got that Gil drive because he had a license. We got up to the store and we went in the store. I said, the only place I didn't, couldn't get in, I looked around the whole store. The only place I couldn't get in is this wooden door back here. We walked back to the wooden door. And when I, when I was in the store the first time, I pushed on the door and it wouldn't move. It wouldn't budge. It wasn't doing nothing. So I figured it was locked. So I jumped up, kicked the door, and the door flew open and slung back in my face. And I just kind of stood there in amazement, and the door was open. Gil stepped around me. There was a body laying on the floor of the cooler door. And uh, Gil started to look at it, and I started to walk to it. And Gil grabbed my shoulder and said, come on, come with me. And we went out, and we called the police. And the police were there within three or four minutes. The ambulances, and pretty much that was the end of that. Is this the first time you'd ever seen a dead body? Uh, no, I saw a lady that died when I was coming home from high school. Some friends of mine, uh, this guy that was drunk, ran the stop sign and hit her in a van, and she flew out of the windshield of the van and was laying in the field. And we uh, we went out and tried to help her, but there was no way helping her. She was dead. And we covered her up and waited for the police to get there because the guy, the kid in the car was drunk, and he was going out of his head trying to take off and stuff. And so we just kind of kept him there till the cops got there. And uh, that was the first time I saw a dead body was that lady. Your recollection of the night everything went down at that convenience store is incredibly detailed. It's like it happened yesterday. I thought about it a million times, sitting to myself year after year after year, you know, trying to decide uh, why something like this was going to happen to me. And, and pretty much I, I figured our fate was sealed. You know, we were already in prison. We had five, six, seven years and eight years in. And pretty much get adjusted to your environment, you know. When you were in prison, did you ever lose hope? I think, I don't think I ever really gave up. I think in my heart, I always believed that, you know, we'd get out of prison and something good would happen. But uh, a lot of it was, I, had, I have a big family, so my family was a lot of help for me. My dad, my mom, my brothers and sisters. Were they supportive of you? Yep. I'm sure they probably had, back of their head, might have had a thought, you know, because you know, we were convicted, they could have probably thought maybe something, you know, we could, but I don't think so. I think they pretty much knew we were innocent. But it was hard on them because they had to live out here in the stigma of it, you know, and it wasn't easy for them working and living here and going through it either. They were just as much as a victim as anybody else. When you think back on that day, is there anything that you wish you had done differently, or did you just feel like it was all out of your hands? Well, this is sure. You always look back and think, man, I shouldn't. I shouldn't have lied to the police. I should have told them I drove to the store, you know. And there's just course there's things. But by the end of the day, when it was all done and said, and we realized how severe, how serious it really was. We told them the truth. We told them the whole story, you know. And at that point, it was like, it was an uphill battle. You know, you thought they believed you. You wanted to believe they believed you, but you know, they're police. They, they check everything out, and they make their own minds up of what they want to believe and what they don't want to believe. Were you assigned a court-appointed attorney? Yeah. And were you satisfied with the case they mounted on your behalf? <laughs> I had a lady. That's kind of a weird story. She was a little red-haired lady that was a, a lawyer. She'd never done a murder case before in her life. First and only one she ever did. And uh, my grandmother died right before I got arrested on this murder charge. Her name was Mary M. And then here came Mary M. Tell me she was my lawyer, right? So I figured it was a godsend because my grandmother died and here came the same lady, same name. So I had, you know, I just believed there was a sign. You know, there was a reason why she was there. So I went with her and uh, she told me it was the first time she ever did a murder case and she did her best. And so we tried our best and, you know, eventually we, did, we won, you know, just took three tries. 
Are you still in touch with her? Yeah, they made her a judge after I got out the last time. She became a circuit court judge, I think, 16 years. Really good lady and pretty fair lady. She's retired now, and I haven't seen her in a long time. But, yeah, I've talked to her throughout the years. Can I ask you a question? You said earlier that you you had a car, but you didn't have a license. Right. How does that happen? <laughs> One gets tickets and doesn't go to court. You pay the tickets. <laughs> oh, so you had a license, but it got taken away. Exactly. Oh. It was suspended. So can we back up a little bit? I'm assuming the police, while you're out at the scene at the convenience store, they ask you to come downtown. No, they told us to go home. They, t- they contact us. Okay. So when's the next time you see the detectives? I think the next time we see them is like 7 or 8 o'clock in the morning. Okay. And they ask you to come down to the station at that point? Yep, they sure did. Walk us through what it's like coming back down to the station. Well, uh, during the interrogation, they, uh, they go, you hear that guy screaming over there? You hear that? You hear that guy screaming? That's Eric. He said that you killed this guy. And uh, we don't think you did it. We think he did it. He's got a worse record than you. And one of us can tell the truth, you know. You're going to tell the truth. I mean, this is after hours and hours of them talking to me, you know. And, and I told them I didn't do it. And uh, they weren't buying that, you know. And basically, we just tucked our story. We told them what we, we did and what we didn't do. And uh, they just interrogated us separately for a long, long time. And then uh, they detained us in a, in a cell. I saw Eric for the first time. He was in a cell across from me. And we talked, and uh, I think they had another cop in another cell next to us that was acting like a prisoner, too, because he gave us cigarettes, you know. It's kind of weird for someone to pass us out cigarettes in the county <laughs> jail, you know. And, but then we woke up in the morning, that guy was gone, so obviously he got out in the middle of the night or something, you know. But uh, the next day we were uh, getting transferred to jail. So at what point during those interviews and that interrogation do they come in and tell you that you're under arrest for murder? Basically, I think... Uh, the way they were acting from the very beginning, I felt like I was under arrest. They didn't really tell us. They just detained us and took us to jail. What's that moment like when you really realize, holy shit, I'm going to go down for this? I really didn't think like that. I figured they'd figure it out. There's no way, you know, that's going to happen. I grew up watching Adam 12, Dragnet, and Mod Squad and shit like that when I was a kid. And I didn't think stuff like that really happened with the police department. You know, I thought they were pretty square shooters, and most of them are, you know. Dave's a great cop here. You know, I've never had any bad, bad actions with him, and we've interacted a few times out here, and I've just pretty much been straight to his word, you know, I think. It is what it is. I think a, a lot of it was growing up, too, and uh, realizing, you know, they're not all bad cops. There's, you know, everyone's got to have bad apple in their department or their career or whatever. Everybody's got somebody that, you know, bends the rules and realizes how to make things work their way without really, you know, it's like you get, you get somebody who knows how to do something for so many years, they can make it happen how they want to make it happen because they know how to work the system. And that, that's the bad part about it, you know. When you get somebody that can manipulate the system, then that's when people's rights and liberties are taken away. This is an odd question, but how did you get along in prison? I was mean in prison. I was angry, and uh, I beat a lot of people up in there. Yeah, I wasn't a very nice prisoner. With a charge like murder, I think a lot of people on the outside think that there's some currency to that when you're in prison. Is there any truth to that? What do you mean? Is that a charge that carries some weight when you're in in prison? Status. I think I, what carries weight in prison is uh, how you carry yourself. 
you can do forgeries, but if you carry yourself the right way, you're going to be respect. It's about respect. If you don't respect yourself, stand up for yourself. It doesn't matter. They won't respect you. I mean, Eric is a little guy. Eric didn't ever lift weights or do anything the whole time he was there, but not anybody ever messed with Eric because they respect him because he kept to himself, did his own time, you know. And he didn't disrespect other people, just kept to himself? I don't think Eric even got in a fight the whole time he was there. Really? Yeah, Eric was pretty quiet. But, you know, he had respect because, you know, he did his own time. He didn't bother anybody. It was basically, uh, prison is, what you want out of prison is what you're going to put into prison. If you want to be an asshole and you want to fight the cops and you you want to be just, you know, a, a gang member or whatever you want, you can be whatever you want to be. If it's, it's up to you, you know. And now it's all about gangs in prison. I mean, that's all it is, is you know, sad really because it's even harder than when I was in there. It is? Oh, yeah. You have to click up in there, don't you? Well, you have to. What did you say it was, click up? You know, join a clique. Yeah, I mean, you got to run with somebody that's going to protect you, and you're going to work for them. Yeah, and the worst thing about that is if you get in a gang, if you're gang fights, and you got to be in the middle of that. But if you got one or two partners, you only got to look out for one or two partners. But you don't want a bunch of partners in prison. You don't want to clean up their messes. But to answer your question, I think that, you know, of course, you know, if you've got, if you've got a murder beef in prison, you know, they're going to treat you a little different because you're not getting out, and they know that. So they look at it a little different, yeah. Did you have a relationship with your co-defendant when you were in prison? I looked after Eric. Eric looks after me. And whatever you know, we could do for each other, we did. Basically, that's all you could do. You got arrested twice, right? You got released the first time. Yeah, we did. Yeah, you got arrested on the original charges, and the district attorney's office didn't file, and you guys were released, right? Yep. And then there was a period of how long before you got rearrested? Three and a half years, wasn't it? Oh, wow. So during that time, were you still in contact with the police? Uh, they followed me around and made their presence known to me. They pulled me up quite a few times in different situations where they came across me and, uh, we had words and, uh, basically cause I was, I'd go places and never be interrogating my friends and people I knew and they'd be there, they'd show up and I'd show up there and they'd be there and then there'd be animosity, the words would be said and then, uh, you know how that goes, you've been there in that situation. So you knew you were a suspect the whole time still, right? Yeah, I, I knew they considered me a suspect because, uh, they wiretapped my phone and followed me around for three and a half years. And all your friends knew that you had been arrested originally. So there was probably talk amongst a lot of people about it during that three-year period of time between when you were arrested and released, right? I don't, I think uh, there was talk about it. I think most of my friends believed me, and they uh, pretty much stood behind me. So what changed in those three and a half years that made them go, okay, now we have enough evidence to rearrest you, and the DA actually filed? That's the most crazy part of it all, because Eric moved away to and uh, he's he had a good friend down there, and Jerry. And Jerry had a job down there for Eric because Eric said he wanted to leave because people were giving him a bad time. He was, you know, he just felt like he was being stared at, he was being watched, he was being judged. So he left. He went to. And uh, he had some friends down there. One of them was. But Jerry and him were friends since grade school. So, you know, he felt like he had somebody down there he could trust, like a big brother. Eric didn't have any brothers or sisters. He didn't have much of a family but his mom. And uh, that's really all he had. So he left. And, uh, Two and a half years goes by, and I think what happened is went down to investigate Eric, and Jared was with him, and they uh, supposedly got some statements from people that Eric was close to down there, that Eric was drinking, playing cards one night, and he admitted that something happened. He wasn't sure because he couldn't remember the whole night. It was kind of a blur to him, but Eric was said to have made statements about the crime, which to me, he's always told me he's never made. Were those people out to get Eric? Well, they had charges up here. Police knew they were wanted up here. The people who were saying Eric was making statements about the crime. Yeah. 
And so they brought him back here and they helped him take care of their charges in lieu of statements that were given. Basically, that's what happened for the next three and a half years. And what about you during that time? I think everything that happened happened in a sequence of events that uh, I think all came along in the fact that I was suing the police department for a a million dollars for a wrongful conviction and slander and a defamation of character. I think that's what, you know, was the big fire behind the whole thing to make them re-arrest us and put us in prison. I think if I wouldn't have filed a lawsuit, if I wouldn't have done anything, I think it would have went away. But I think that uh, I uh, pushed their hand when I filed a lawsuit against them. Skipping forward a bit, what was that feeling like when you found out you were actually going to get released from prison? I didn't believe it. (laughs) Yeah, it was pretty weird. They called me down from the dorms in the county jail, and uh, Mary Ann was there with the other lawyer I got, and uh, she was crying. I, I couldn't figure out why she was crying, you know. And uh, She goes, you need to sit down. And uh, so I sat down, and she told me the whole story about them uh, knowing for a while that uh, they had the wrong people in prison. I think they knew for a while that me and Eric didn't do it. I think they knew for years that we didn't do it. That's my personal opinion of it. So the DA knew that we didn't do it. The blood they used to convict us came back. It wasn't even the victim's blood. They didn't have DNA in 1983 and 86. It wasn't a proven technique yet. And so uh, they were going to let us go, but they didn't know what they were going to do with Eric because he lost all his appeals. And so he was pretty much stuck in where he's at. And uh, they were trying to figure out how to get Eric out of the state prison. And uh, it was kind of a mess for him for a minute. I think uh, Dave went up and saw Eric in prison, didn't you? I did, yes. What did you go up there for? What was needed to be set in motion to let people out of prison was kind of a, an unknown thing, especially for murder. And our bosses were figuring that out. But they wanted us to go talk to Eric one last time to see if there's anything different in what he said. And I remember we weren't supposed to talk to his lawyer on the way up there, but we would had to take him with us. And he was really quiet the whole time. He didn't know what was going on, and we did know what was going on. Oh, my God, that's awkward. Yeah. And Eric's story wasn't anything different than when I read the original case file. And he was actually in tears talking to us about it still. He started crying. He would ask, what do you guys want to know this again for? I've said it a million times. And we drove away. And the lawyer all the way back was really, what are you guys doing? What's going on here? And the next day he was released. And were you there when Eric and Sam were released? No, I wasn't. And when did you meet up with them again? I want to, I feel like, I want to know if there was like a big Lassie reunion. <laughs> no, there there really wasn't. Uh, Eric did come by the station and say thanks. And I saw him later. We ran into each other, you, me, and Don. Yeah. And it was soon after that. And he, very cordial, thanked us, and we went on our way. You say you were angry in prison. Did that anger ever leave you? I mean, I know you guys have kind of a, a really nice cordial relationship between the two of you, but where do you put all that? How do you feel like this changed you, if it did? Huh. Oh, yeah, it changed me. You couldn't experience something like this and not be changed. But uh, I think I finally let go of the anger. I'm going down to the chaplain, right? I grew up a Catholic, and uh, I went down to Mass, and uh, it was Christmas Mass, and I guess we all uh, joined hands and we prayed, and said the words of the Lord, and uh, I felt that something had come over me, something that was different came over me, and uh, it kind of like a weight came off me and just lifted me, and uh, I looked around, and I looked at these people. There was child molesters, there was rapists, there was robbers, there was burglars, there was black, there was white. There was just, you know, an assortment of people in the church, right? But it didn't really have a, a stigma to it. It was just, it was Christmas. I was thinking, this is I'm supposed to be my family, and here I am 
you know, here I am in prison again another Christmas, but uh, I felt, you know, that everything was going to be all right. I don't know, it was probably five, six years into it. I just felt like someone was lifted off me, and I felt something. I, was, I don't want to say it's the Holy Spirit or something that touched me and told me it was going to be all right. Everything was going to be all right. Things would get better in my life. And uh, they slow, surely started slowly getting better, you know. And I won, a, I won my first appeal, came back, lost that appeal in 45 minutes, and I was on my way back to prison again doing life. Pretty much basically what that happened. And uh, three and a half years later, we won the appeal again. I came back. That's when Marianne came across people that did the crime, and we were released. That's incredible. If I were ever sent to prison for something I didn't do, I feel like my days would be consumed with wondering who was actually guilty of the crime and where are they? Yeah. I remember sitting out in the prison yard with Eric, and uh, we, we smoked a joint because you get this weed in prison. We smoked there a is? There is? How do they get weed in there? <laughs> wow. There's pretty much anything you want in prison. Really? Even hard drugs? Even hard drugs. Stop it. We were walking around the track smoking a joint, just talking one day. It was a nice summer day, and... Uh, Eric's big thing is Eric didn't want to lift weights or nothing in prison. He said, look, I'll lift weights the last five years of the 20. He played handball. He kept to himself, and he just, that's what Eric did, you know, and he worked. We sat down, and we were just saying, man, 2006, that's a long time. You know, because it was like, I think it was 1993, 92. I mean, it was, we were only in there for five years at that time. You know, we looked at each other, and uh, I asked Eric, I said, you ever get the feeling that the guys who did this crime are sitting in here with us right now? They're in this prison with us. He goes, who knows, right? Did you ever meet the man who committed the crime? Yeah. What was that like? It was pretty weird. He was cordial. He was he was pretty respectful. I mean, I probably wasn't that respectful to him. I just said, I've been waiting a long time to meet you. <laughs> and uh, I asked him what happened and what really happened there. And he told me his version of it. And I uh, told him that it's pretty shitty what happened. It was a sad thing that the kid had to get killed over some beer and some money that wasn't about nothing. And... Uh, I said, we lost a lot of our lives, and he said it wasn't easy for him out here either. He was scared, and he had a hard time, too, because it was his cousin or his uncle, and they were all scared of him. So I guess he was supposed to be a badass. Because it was his uncle who committed the murder. Yep. Hey, small town fam, it's Yardley. I want to talk about pros. Pros is the custom hair and skin beauty brand where you get on their website, answer a bunch of questions about where you live and how old you are, what kind of hair you have, what kind of hair you want to have. And then from millions of possible formulas, they create a formula just for you. So I'm lucky I have a lot of hair. Most days, my hair is the boss of me. So I need shampoo and conditioner that gets my hair to calm down a little bit. So I've been using Pros for a while, and one of my favorite things about it is you can choose your scent. They have a review and refine tool, which learns from my feedback and then adjusts the formula. Also, Pros is a certified B Corp. It's cruelty-free, and it's the first and only carbon-neutral custom beauty brand. So it's not only better for you, it's better for the planet. So, small town fam, Pros is so confident that you'll bring out your best hair and skin that they're offering an exclusive trial of 50% off your first subscription order at pros.com slash town. That's right. You get your free consultation and then 50% off 
at pros.com slash town. That's P-R-O-S-E dot com slash town. Do it. Hey, small town fam. It's Yardley. It's going to be summer soon, so the potential for stinky pits is imminent. That's why I really love Lumi. I'm obsessed with their sweat control, cream deodorant. I think I've said this so many times, but honest to God, I never thought I'd use a cream deodorant because they're sloppy and gloppy and sticky and bleh. But Lumi isn't any of those things. It dries quickly, it's never sticky, and it doesn't leave any white streaks on my dark clothing. So all of those things are a win for me. If you're not familiar with Lumi, let me tell you a few things. Six years ago, an OBGYN invented her game-changing whole-body deodorant, and now it has over 300,000 five-star reviews from people like me. Lumi is baking soda-free, paraben-free, and pH-balanced, so it's safe for your pits and your bits, which means you can use it below the belt. They have a lovely variety of fresh, bright scents like clean tangerine, my favorite, lavender sage, or toasted coconut. And the secret to Lumi's success is it's formulated and powered by mandelic acid. That's how it stops odor before it starts. So, small town fam, Lumi's starter pack is perfect for new customers. It comes with a solid stick deodorant, cream tube deodorant, my fave, and two free products of your choice, like mini body wash or deodorant wipes, and free shipping. And on top of that, as a special offer for listeners, new customers get 15% off all Lumi products with our exclusive code, which is small town. And if you combine the 15% off with the already discounted starter pack, that equals over 40% off the starter pack. So use code small town for 15% off your first purchase at lumideodorant.com. That's code small town at L-U-M-E deodorant.com. Do it. Hey folks. Detective Dave here. Let me tell you about Simply Safe, the home security system that I trust to keep my family safe. I depend on Simply Safe to provide me and my loved ones with 360 degree coverage of my property and valuables. I love the variety of monitoring sensors available with Simply Safe Home Security. You get a glass break sensor, which in my experience is one of the most effective tools of detecting a break in. In addition, Simply Safe offers motion sensors, entry sensors, sirens, and flood and fire detection. With Simply Safe Home Security, I have the flexibility to use keypads at multiple entries at my house. This option is especially important to me and my family. I can provide access to people I trust and limit having multiple keys outside of my control, all at the push of a button via the Simply Safe app. It comes with a variety of cameras for indoors and outdoors. And best of all, Simply Safe is backed by 24-7 professional monitoring for less than $1 a day. It gives me peace of mind knowing I can leave the house, I can leave town, I can even leave the country, and I know my home is simply safe. The mobile app integration makes it so easy to make sure everything's in place in real time. I check it every day when I'm away from home. Simply Safe is the best. U.S. News and World Report named Simply Safe Best Home Security Systems 2024. And Newsweek ranked it Best Customer Service in Home Security. With Simply Safe, there are no contracts. And if you're not happy with the service or the product, they have a 60 day money back guarantee. Simply Safe has given me and many of our listeners real peace of mind. We want you to have it too. 
Right now, get 20% off any new Simply Safe system with Fast Protect monitoring at simplysafe.com/smalltown. That's simplysafe.com/smalltown. There's no safe like Simply Safe. How long were you in prison? A decade? Eight and a half years. Eight and a half years. That's a long time. Tell me what it's like to get out and have to reacquaint yourself with everyday life. When we got out, my lawyers took me home. It was weird to get in the car, you ride in the car. You don't think the car's going to stop before the light. Just everything's different, the colors, the smells, the, you know. Everybody's not wearing the same color of clothes, you know. It's just... It's just totally different. It's kind of a you know shock in a way, because you're not used to seeing. I mean, when you're in an environment where it's contained the whole time, you know, and everybody's wearing the same thing, and your senses get kind of numb to it. What I had going for me, I had a big family, so when I got to my mom and dad's house. I, you know, my brothers are there, my sisters are there, my aunts. You know, I had my family there, so that helped me a lot. I just kind of stuck close to them for the first couple months. Did you get a job? No, I didn't get a job right away. I just kind of just I. Just, Help my mom. My dad died right before I got out of prison. He worked for the railroad for 37 years, and he had a heart attack and died at 57. You know, so my mom and dad are pretty well off. They weren't struggling bad or anything. All my brothers and sisters were raised. They had jobs, and I stayed with my mom for a while. And, uh, and eventually, I got a job for a couple friends doing a weatherization, and I got a job in a mill, and I worked a few different jobs. But uh, basically, uh, I just went on about my life, lived, and. Mary Ann got us the Lord, and he had us doing things, too. Like, he had us going to see a psychiatrist twice a month, which was probably pretty good. It was Dr. He was a, like a forefather in forensics and psychology. He uh, did all the PE tests for prison evaluations, and he was like a mentor to most other guys for psychology. He was like the head of the head. He designed a lot of the tests that they use now. That's how they judge how to let people out. He was the head of the psychiatry board, but he didn't have to work there. He just sat on the board and— uh, his son was a lawyer, and my lawyer knew his son, so they asked Dr. if he'd come out and uh, study Eric and I and see what was going on with us. He hadn't had two people that had been locked up that much time, like eight and a half years, in a confined environment for something they didn't do. So he wanted to see what the difference was between Eric and I. So he split us up, made Eric go on Thursdays, and I would go on Tuesdays. He gave us all the same tests, you know. He had all these different repeater tests that he had to go through and fill out, and I remember the first time I went there, I asked him where the couch was because there was no couch, right? And so he goes, oh, you want a couch? I'll get you a couch. And he did. He got a couch. You know, it's kind of cool. He was a good guy. He looked like Colonel Sanders, like, from, you know, Kentucky Fried Chicken. <laughs> he was a good old boy. He was just a really nice guy. He ended up uh, he ended up not being in the picture very long. He did it for like a year, a little over a year. He studied me and Eric and uh, come to find out he had bone cancer and uh, he was going to die in the next six months. And so uh, he said he couldn't help us anymore. He couldn't work with us anymore because he had to give the last six months to the year of his life to his family, his wife and stuff. And he didn't want to quit without doing what he started. But he said he had a list of 20 other guys that were willing to volunteer their time for free to take over what he left off if, if we wanted it. Did you? No, we, did, we, just, we didn't want it. How come? Because uh, Dr. told us a few things before he left. He told us both, you guys got a long ways to go, but you're going to be all right. You still have the ability to love. If you love your family, you love. So right there, you're going to be all right. It's not going to be easy. He goes, you're not going to get an apology from anybody. No one's going to say they're sorry to you. But, you know, you don't need that. What you need is just to have 
faith in yourself and uh, your family and stay strong, you're going to be just fine. You're going to be all right. And he goes, if you want to see some of these other psychiatrists, they, they know what I'm doing. They know how we started. And you can follow up with them, and they can finish where I started. And uh, me and Eric both decided we didn't want to see another one. We just went with him. Are you still in touch with Eric? I haven't talked to Eric in 14 years. Really? Wow. <laughs> On purpose or? Well, yeah, pretty much. Do you guys have a falling out? Uh, we just had a difference of opinion, I guess. And uh, Eric's been in prison pretty much a lot of the time that, that I've been out back and forth in the penitentiary. And uh, like I said, Eric didn't have a lot of family support. He just had his mom. And he just went back and forth. How are you now? Me? Mm-hmm. I'm, uh, I guess fine. I mean, I'm, I'm going through my elements of life, living with it, dealing with it, you know. I'm sure that I'll never forget it. It'll be an experience that I'll, you know, never leave me, I'm sure. I have my issues about things that, you know, I don't think are probably perfect normal thinking, you know, but, you know, I think you get a, you get a way of thinking when something like that happens to you. It's hard for you to believe or trust in the, in the system or certain people or, you know, it's just you get stuck in an environment with people like that for nine years, eight years, and you, when you get out of prison— you can't just see people that you knew in there, people you ran across, like you don't know them anymore. Did you make any friends in prison? I wouldn't call them friends, but yeah, I met a lot of people because I played sports, you know. Oh, in prison? Yeah, played a lot of sports. You can play sports and smoke weed in prison. I'm learning. <laughs> wow. And go to college and everything else. Did you do anything like that, learn about the law or go to college? Yeah, I got an associate science degree at same as Eric. We went through community college, and I went to the law library and studied law for years. And you did that, obviously, I'm assuming, so that you could be more informed about your own case, yes? And the appeals and all that stuff? Yeah. It's so striking to me that you said you won your first appeal. Does that mean that you got a new trial? Yeah. And then it was over in 45 minutes and you're on your way back to prison? Pretty much, yeah. That's got to be devastating. Well, they did something they'd never done before in the United States. They uh, told the jury that I was guilty of murder and there's no questions about it. He's guilty of murder. And they gave us a chance to put on mitigating factors, and the state would put on aggravating factors. And uh, the jury decided it was aggravated murder, simple murder, felony murder. And uh, I refused to participate in the trial because my whole case was I was innocent. How do I put on a defense when they tell the jury I'm guilty of murder? So I just objected to it and didn't participate in the trial. It took them 45 minutes, and they convicted me and sent me back to prison. But it got overturned by the Supreme Court. It just took three more years. How do you feel about Sergeant David? Uh, I've had a couple of runs with Dave, and uh, Dave's a cop, you know, and, you know, <laughs> small town, Dave's a pretty good cop, you know. We know. He's one of the smarter cops out there. He knows what's going on out there, and he's got a feel for things. But uh, Dave's a pretty straight shooter from what I've interacted with. I mean, if he tells you where he's at, and he pretty much stands behind his word, you know. He hasn't, from my interactions with him, ever not told me the truth of what's going on, you know. He laid it out there as my choice whether I wanted to believe it or not, you know, and how I wanted to act with it. It hasn't ever done me wrong, you know, that I know of. So Detective Dan tells his story about running into a guy that he had arrested multiple times and then being someplace else, and this man walks into the men's room where Dan is, and he has a little boy with him, and he says to his little boy, this is Detective Dan. He's a really good guy, and he was always really fair and very respectful towards me when I was in trouble. And it meant so much to Dan, obviously, and... We know from speaking to Sergeant David on multiple occasions, your characterization of him fits what 
our experience of him is as well. And Sergeant David, we wonder, I know you're not a man, you're not sentimental, you're not a sentimental fellow, but to hear from somebody who has really been through the system that you're always fair, what does that mean to you? It means a lot, actually, it does. You know, we'd always try to get it right the best we can. And what this case showed me earlier was that never think you know everything. You have to really be confident in what you're doing. I mean, taking away people's freedoms like that. And I, I like I said, this community is not small, but it's not big either. And you run into people all the time. And word in the criminal community gets around and the truth gets embellished a lot. And if you're a jerk to people, it gets embellished tenfold. And I think most people that I've arrested in my life understood why they're getting arrested. They're not shocked by it because they know <laughs> what they're up to. And I always treat people with respect till they're not respectful to me. And it's a pretty easy thing to do, really. I could leave the room. You could really talk about me, though, if you want. Ha, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you're, you're fine. So can I ask, is there anything in your life now that you aspire to or are passionate about? I'm just curious. Uh, yeah. I'm, uh, my family, I guess. My family just, I have a little girl that's a year old now and, a year? You yeah. do? Oh. Uh, some passionate about that. And uh, basically just, you know, trying to put this behind me, really. It's been way too long, you know, too many years and too much about it, and it doesn't ever seem to go away. I know there are rules in prison on what kind of content you can have. I don't know if guys in prison listen to podcasts. I'm sure they could, yeah. Obviously, there are probably people out there that have been convicted of crimes that they did not commit. If there's something that you can say to those folks, what would it be? Don't ever give up. If you know you're right and you didn't do it, stay true to yourself. And there's people out there like Project Innocence and uh, Barry Schick and different organizations that you can write letters to and they will help you. They will, you know, it might take a while, but someone will get in contact with you and uh, just stay positive. Trust in uh, the Lord and just... Pray and hope for the best in life. Don't give up either way, one day at a time. Yeah, that's probably a pretty difficult thing to do in that environment, too. Yeah, that's pretty much all you can do is one day at a time, you know. And, you know, prison wasn't as bad as people make it out to be. Why not? Why not? Why wasn't that bad? Yeah. Because if, if you go in there and, you know, do what you need to do, and if, I mean, if you're only doing a year or something, man, some people really need it. Maybe it'll straighten their lives out. Some people keep coming back, you know, because it don't work for them, but... You know, you, there's things you can go. You can go to school in there. You can, you know, educate. You can get clean. You can play sports, you know. I had a lot of partners who would come in, you know, like 16 months sets, and then they'd, you know, get out, and you think, oh, they're going to be doing it good. But my rule was if you got out twice and you came back the third time, I didn't know you. I didn't talk to you. I didn't know you anymore because you got out three times, and I'm sitting here doing life, and I haven't got out one time. So obviously you don't value your freedom, so I don't value you much. You ultimately filed a lawsuit against the city and got a settlement. Did that feel like a win for you? I think uh, what we always strived to have and what we always wanted was maybe an apology. That never was to come. Like our lawyer said, you don't need an apology from the money's the apology. But to me, the money never was the apology. You know, it was the, they couldn't be wrong kind of attitude, you know, and they, it's just like they never believed the truth, you know. No, that was probably the hardest time. I think Dave is the first cop I ever met that I truly believed that knew I didn't do it, you know, and I think that's kind of like I respected him the most for his guy. I think he got involved with it. He, he looked at the case. He knows what, what happened, and he knows the truth. 
I think that was one of the biggest things for me that I was thankful for. Can I ask how much you sued the city for? We were suing for $44 million. But the city only had $2.3 million when we sued them. That's all they were insured for. And it went to arbitration and settled out. How much your lawyer take? They took uh, 333000 from both of us, 666000 and then 187000 out-of-pocket expenses. So they didn't leave us with too much. <laughs> so you do the time and they get, they get paid for it? Well, yeah, that's the way it works. They got the money, you know. You got you to take what you can get at that point, you know. What can you do? You figure something was better than nothing. I guess so. But like you said, an apology would have gone a really long way. Yeah. Well, Sam, yours is an incredible story. Really, thank you so much for sitting down with us. We really appreciate you taking the time. You're welcome. Sergeant David, we want to take this chance to sit down with you after the fact and ask you what your impressions of that interview were, because it's an unusual situation that we would have an opportunity, first of all, to interview a suspect, and you rightfully so wanted to be, to be present for that interview. Well, one of the big reasons I wanted to be present was because I know criminals, and I know how they manipulate situations to better themselves and make themselves look better and the police look worse and that kind of thing. And although this case was a mistake by the police department, they arrested the wrong people, but that case went all the way through the court system too. So it's just one of the examples of when you have a system that is run and judged by humans, mistakes can be made. You refer to Sam as a criminal and by his own admission... He hasn't lived a completely blameless life, but he was also a victim in this pretty significant miscarriage of justice situation. So can you get into that a little bit more? That's a good question. I need to clarify that point. When I, as a police officer, as long as I've been doing it, call someone a criminal, you know, we as police officers, we deal with criminals all the time. I mean, everybody we talk to is a criminal. This is one of those different cases where instead of putting someone in jail, we're working on getting them out of jail. But He's still within that criminal element, and when he is arrested and put in that jail and around all the other criminals, he's got to become a criminal of somewhat to look like he fits in and to get any sign of credit. It's a survival thing. Yeah, he's playing the part. Yeah, and for me to refer to him as a criminal, he wasn't a criminal in this case. He was not smart in trying to play a criminal, though, because he was trying to play a criminal sometimes in what he was saying to other people who were in that criminal element. When he was in jail? When he was in jail and before he went to jail. A lot of the things that he said to people were hinting toward, yeah, I might have been had something to do with that. And even to the point where today I still have people come in and ask about that because they say he's made statements today that he got away with that. I know that's not true. I'm 100% confident of that. But it's still, it's that bragging that I'm someone to be dealt with kind of thing that has been there and done that in that world. And yet when he was with us, there wasn't any flicker of that. No, and I've had conversations with him about this. And the first time I met him is when he got released from prison. And we've had interactions since then. And he is, I would say, somewhat a product of what happened to him there. But he was already headed down that road before he got arrested. 
And it's just one of those things where it's this human element where you just don't understand how you get from there. And I'm sure he didn't at some point, about three years in, sitting in jail for murder for the rest of his life. One of the most interesting things he said in that thing was how he didn't respect people who came back to prison because somebody who doesn't respect their freedom, he doesn't respect them. I think that the lesson he got taught there was value your freedom because you know, he's sitting there every day knowing he didn't do something and knowing that his freedom's gone for the rest of his life at some point. And so, you know, I have respect for him for that. I mean, he came in here, he said his version of what he thought happened and what took place. And it just shows you that even though sometimes it seems like we're worlds apart in the criminal cop world, we're really not in a lot of ways. That's the secret for both sides, especially police as far as being able to talk to these people because you got to understand all that so you understand where they're coming from when they're trying to talk to you. We talk a lot on the show about the imperfect victim, you know, and how it's really hard for people who are looking at a situation or a case and trying to judge who's right and who's wrong, who's guilty, who's innocent, to really start to think in terms of black and white. And it gets very difficult when you look at somebody who's the imperfect victim, somebody who is a victim in one circumstance, but, you know, is out in the world doing some things that we would otherwise point to and say, oh, that's really shady. Yeah. The story's horrible. But it wasn't like this big Hollywood wrapped up. Now he's coming on the show and talking about how he's either fully reformed or it broke him for life. It's just he's just riding this wave of gray area. And it was really striking to see the two of you sitting next to one another and to see the amount of respect, even still in the midst of all of that, that you actually have for one another. Well, one of the reasons I do respect him, you can't really change what happened. He got paid a pretty good sum of money, but money doesn't solve that kind of thing, you know. But he's accepted his fate. He's accepted what's happened and trying to get on with his life a little bit the best he can. It's hard to overcome sometimes. You know, humans are fascinating creatures, and I think you have to understand all the motives that they have to do the things they do and say the things they say if you're going to be successful in getting the right information or the so-called perfect victim to tell you everything or even witnesses because they have preconceived notions about law enforcement. And we in law enforcement have preconceived notions about what we call criminals. So you got to work through that all the time. I'm curious to know, because a lot of your job is being able to put yourself in say, somebody's shoes like Sam to recognize where they're coming from in order for you to be able to communicate with them effectively to get the information that you're after. Were you always like that when you were growing up? And were you always interested in people and what made them tick? You know, I don't think I really gave it much thought when I was a young man because young men don't think much, but <laughs> except about a certain few things. But when I finally took a job as a police officer, I realized how much power there really is to take away someone's freedom because I value my freedom more than anything. I could not be chained in a building like that. I couldn't do it. Not that I'm afraid of who's in there. It's just it drive me crazy to be locked up. And so I've always respected that. And Dan and Dave can test this too. 85 to 90% of the people you put in jail, they're not mad at you for putting them there. They know that they're going. Really? If you explain to them what you're doing and why you're doing it, and they understand that they basically got caught, they're not mad at you. Some of them are, you know, the sociopaths and psychopaths are going to be mad at you for anything. But as long as you respect that, you know, respect it. I know I'm taking your freedom away. I got to feel good about it, too. I don't want to do that to anybody that doesn't deserve it. One of the things you absorb when you're working for Sergeant Dave is the professionalism and showing people respect and being noble when you are dealing with a suspect. And what I've learned over the years is if I treat somebody fairly with respect— they're going to get out of prison eventually. And 
when you see them again after they got out of prison, it's pretty powerful when they look at you and they give you a nod that they respect you. And I, I appreciate that because they're not mad at me. They know that they screwed up, but I showed them a measure of respect and we can move on from it. I'm struck by what both of you are essentially saying is that you want justice for the victim, but as much as you can remove the judgment about why that person has the lifestyle, you know, the criminal lifestyle that they happen to be in, that's not really your concern. Your concern is a need to right this wrong, and it's terrible that things didn't work out for you, but you don't seem to lord it over them. You want the light bulb to go on for them, and that's the hope. Well, not everybody's the same as far as criminal-wise. There's some people who are just truly evil throughout their soul. They really are. And I, I don't mean this for them at all, but I do mean that most of the people that are in prison for the circumstances that they've done, they're really not that different from us, us being cops. They're really not. And we and they need to realize that at some point. Can you draw that line a little more clearly? What do you mean by that? Well, we all grow up, we know what the rules are. And some people on one side think that the rules are kind of, you know, they're a gray area or whatever. And then there's people on the other side and the cop side. The key to all that is figuring out with each individual where that line is. How can I make you understand what you're doing is wrong and you're going to go pay for it in whatever way you're going to do it and then you're not going to be back. I had a saying when I worked dope, when I worked narcotics, I did a lot of undercover stuff and that kind of thing. But when we would arrest people and people that I had relationships with, people that I was buying drugs from, you get to know them in a different light. And I always say, you're not a bad person, but you're doing a bad thing. There's just not a lot of difference sometimes. That's what's always fascinated me. Such a good answer. So cool. Thank you again, Sergeant David. Honestly, we could talk to you every episode. Every time you come see us, we learn something new. You're just a fascinating human being. Thank you. Thanks. Small Town Dicks is produced by Zibby Allen and Yardley Smith and co-produced by Detectives Dan and Dave. This episode was edited by Logan Heftel, Yardley Smith, and Zibby Allen. Music for the show was composed by John Forrest. Our associate producer is Erin Gaynor, and our books are cooked and cats wrangled by Ben Cornwell. If you like what you hear and want to stay up to date with the show, head on over to smalltowndicks.com and become our pal on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Small Town Dicks. We love hearing from our small town fam, so hit us up. Yeah, and also we have a YouTube channel where you can see trailers for past and forthcoming episodes That's right. If you choose to subscribe, you'll be supporting our podcast. That way, we can keep going to small towns across the country and bringing you the finest in rare true crime cases, told, as always, by the detectives who investigated them. Thanks for listening, small town fam. Nobody's better than you.